Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the Paul Volcker Senior Fellow at the International Economics Council on Foreign Relations and a Washington Post columnist. He previously spent 13 years at The Economist magazine covering international finance and eight years on the editorial board of The Washington Post, focusing on globalization and political economy. His latest book is The Power of Law, Venture Capital, and the Making of the New Future. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Sebastian Mellaby. Thank you so much for joining us, Sebastian. Sure. Great to be with you. So I wanted to start off by asking you about this power law dynamic in, in venture capital that, that you write about in the book, in which an exceedingly small percentage of startups succeed at such a large scale that they more than make up for the majority of businesses that tend to fail. So yourself, having researched so many venture-backed successes and failures, um, what typically tends to differentiate the two, and, and why is venture capital so important? Yeah, so a venture capital uh, portfolio, if you imagine it making 10 uh, investments in 10 different startups, probably, uh, you know, eight will go to zero or, or, or something like that, right? They just, they'll fail. Most startups do fail. Uh, but the hope is that, as you say, uh, one or two will do really, really well. And they'll get like, you know, 20 times the initial capital invested or or something like that. So the great thing about venture capital is that it understands that dynamic. It's willing to take um, a situation where a lot of the bets will go wrong and not be put off. Um, and that way you can fund lots of low probability but high outcome bets and thereby you know, do the experiments that are going to be you know, the long shot attempts to invent the future. Right. Um, and, and so why, why specifically venture capital as opposed to, you know, just getting a loan from, from a bank? Well, banks have a totally different expectation when they lend money. I mean, for them, it's a catastrophe, uh, you know, or it's pretty bad if the person doesn't pay back. Um, the business model is we give you a loan, um, we charge you some interest, um, but um, we, we really do expect you to pay back and there's going to be a legal contract that says you have to pay back. And if you declare bankruptcy and get the protection of the bankruptcy laws, then we'll negotiate how much you pay back. But the idea that you'll pay back nothing is, is you know, very, very unlikely. And so a, a lender is taking a small upside. So just the interest that gets paid, it could be, you know, 3%, 4%, whatever, um, whereas a venture investor is expecting shares in the company. Therefore, if it really does well and it multiplies its value by 20 times, the investor is getting not a 3% return, but a return of, you know, hundreds of percent, a thousand percent, you know, something really, really big. But in exchange for that very big potential return, the venture investor is willing to accept the reality that the return might also be zero. So it's a, it's a high risk but high reward business. Banks are a low risk, but low reward kind of financing. So in your experience, is there anything you found that typically tends to differentiate um, successes from failures? Well, you know, if it was that easy to describe the differentiation, then you wouldn't have a power law business, you know, you wouldn't be needed, right? If, if the venture capitalist could tell ahead of time which bets were going to go uh, uh, 20 times up, um, and which would go to zero, you know, if they could tell the difference, they wouldn't do the ones that were going to go to zero. The whole point is, um, all of them look promising at the moment when you start. But, you know, life is difficult. For example, you might back a terrific team 
of entrepreneurs who have a great idea and they start building it. And then, you know, a year in, you realize that um, a big competitor, uh, whatever, you know, Google or someone has had the same idea and they roll out the product and they just got way more muscle behind it. And so your venture fails. It wasn't that it was a bad idea. It wasn't that the entrepreneur was anything other than dedicated and brilliant. It's just that stuff happens when you do startups that you can't predict. And so there's no good answer to your question about what differentiates ahead of time. I mean, you don't, you can't tell ahead of time which one is going to work and, and which one is not. Right. Um, and so next, I wanted to ask you why the scale of, of venture capital is so much bigger in the U.S. and more specifically in Silicon Valley as compared to other parts of the world uh, with, with similarly developed economies. And, and if this is potentially going to change in the future. Yeah, I mean, some people would say it's because of culture that, you know, the U.S. has a risk taking culture and therefore there are lots of entrepreneurs and lots of venture capitalists who invest in them. I think it's kind of the other way around. I think if you've got the venture capital, uh, it creates the risk-taking culture. Um, and as venture capital spreads to other geographies, um, the risk-taking culture will spread as well. And so we've already seen this happen in China, which has a huge startup venture capital scene. It's happened in India, where there's been quite a transformation in the attitudes towards entrepreneurship. Um, I was just having a funny conversation this week with a venture capitalist in India who described to me how 10 years ago, um, being an entrepreneur was kind of like being a loser. You know, people just didn't take it seriously. And if, you know, in one case, there was one entrepreneur who wanted to get married and the prospective father-in-law would not let his daughter marry the entrepreneur because to be an entrepreneur was a loser, right? Um, but 10 years later, because there have been Stories like Flipkart, an Indian startup that became, you know, incredibly valuable, did really, really well. Uh, that attitude towards entrepreneurship has completely uh, done a 180. And now it's very much looked up to. And Indians watch the TV show Shark Tank about people, you know, entrepreneurs pitching for money from venture capitalists. There's a Hindi language version of it. So it shows you how once you've got venture capital installed and, and it starts to fund companies and then some of them do so well that it really impresses people, that sort of star effect can change the culture. And, um, and, and so I think as I watch venture capitalists from the US set up offices in London, uh, I'm convinced that the risk appetite in London and in Europe more generally is going to become uh, more aggressive, that you know, we're going to see the Silicon Valley model spreading all over the world. Right. And do you think there's any um, difference between um, developing and, and developed countries in this regard? Obviously, um, the the example you mentioned, um, I'm from India myself, so I can definitely see that that sort of dy dynamic play out. But I, th I think part of the reason behind that is, is when you have a, a country that's extremely poor, um, where, you know, the the, the thing that's going to be prized most is a stable career where, you know, you're always going to be able to take care of your family. Um, as an ent entrepreneur, if you if one of your startup ideas fails and the next day you have no money for food, um, there's obviously going to be, um, uh, people are obviously going to um, tend towards 
uh, uh, lower risk propositions. And so, um, what, what about in, in other parts of the world so, um, that are more developed? For example, um, Southern England um, with similar uh, similar GDP per capita, um, e excellent, like world leading education with Oxford and Cambridge. Why is there um, why is that not comparable to, to Silicon Valley? Is there still a cultural difference? No, I mean what my what I'm saying is that uh, that if well there may they may have been historically a cultural difference, but that this can be changed. You know, culture is not static. Uh, uh, just like in the example of, you know, ten or twelve years ago, maybe an entrepreneur in India had trouble persuading the father-in-law that it was okay. You know, and that's sort of gone, uh, as far as I'm told. You know, that's just one little anecdote about a general point that you know in Europe. In the last 25 years, maybe it's true that people were not as risk-friendly uh, as in Silicon Valley. But what I'm saying is that that can change in the future, and they can become uh, more willing to, to take risk. And if you think about it, venture capital began in Silicon Valley before it was even called Silicon Valley. It began in the late 50s and early 60s, and at that time, the United States had a very corporate culture. Right? People, you know, tended to sign up for a big company work there for their entire lives, retire at the age of 60 with a gold watch, and loyalty to the company was prized. And you had big companies, big labor unions, big government. It was not a, a sort of networky, small organization kind of setup at all. And when the first um, scientists, you know, left Shockley Semiconductor to do a, a startup called Fairchild, they were called the traitorous eight, right? They were traitorous, meaning... It was so shocking to leave your boss and go and start up your own company that you were actually called traitors. Uh, and so it shows you that the culture in the 50s and 60s, even in Silicon Valley, um, was not risk-taking. It was not entrepreneurial. But then venture capitalists showed up and they persuaded people who had good ideas that instead of just working for a big company, they should set up their own company. And, and they de-risked the proposition they de-risk it partly by saying, you can do this company, I'll get you the capital. If it fails, you're failing with somebody else's money. Then they de-risk it by saying, I know it's scary. You haven't done a company before, but I've backed like 25 of them. So I can be there to guide you and coach you and, you know, tell you, uh, you know, give you some feedback. So I'll make it less scary for you. And then the entrepreneur might say, well, yeah, but I've got to hire five great engineers to join me on this adventure to help build the product. And I don't know who I'm going to hire. And the venture capitalist would say, well, I've got a network and uh, I've got a brand and I'm going to, you know, persuade these people to come and join your startup. And the entrepreneur says, yeah, but the startup is risky. It might fail. Why would people come and work for me? And then the venture capitalist says, well, you know, I'll tell them if they work for your company, yes, it might fail, but then I'll get them another job with another startup because I'm backing new startups all the time. And, you know, Eric Schmidt told me that he joined Google only because a venture capitalist assured him that if he joined Google and then he got fired by the young founders, Larry and Sergey, who had zero respect for anybody over the age of 30, um, if, they, if, if they bounced him out, uh, Eric Schmidt would be given a new job running a different startup by the venture capitalists. So, what I'm saying is that you know, venture capital is a machine for manufacturing courage. It's a way of de-risking entrepreneurship. Not totally, of course, it's still risky, but it makes it a lot less risky than it would be. And so I think that in southern England, 
it's happening right now. It, you know, the same kind of Silicon Valley type of stories are starting to emerge. I mean, there's a great story about um, how Sequoia, perhaps the top VC partnership in the world, was trying to find the next company to build a breakout um, semiconductor designed specifically for artificial intelligence. And Sequoia started by looking at prospective semiconductor designers that were emerging in Silicon Valley, and they were pretty good. But as it checked all the references, went to speak to everybody in the network, they discovered that there was this upstart in Bristol, in South England, called Graphcore. And in the end, Sequoia invested in Graphcore instead of investing in any American contender in that particular niche market for semiconductors for AI. And so it, it's, you know, you're sure the history is Silicon Valley has been in front of everybody else for taking risk. But having studied this for five years as I was doing my book, I'm convinced that this is a secret formula that can be bottled and spread around the world. And that's what's happening right now. Right. Um, and so are there, are there any advantages to, to working with, for example, uh, a venture capital, uh, a venture capitalist typically works with a firm as opposed to an angel investor? Um, are, are there any advantages or, or disadvantages? Um, is one more preferable to the other? Um, they're different. So an angel investor will write a relatively small check um, and it will be quite an informal relationship. And um, the angel probably has had a past experience of being an entrepreneur and so will give, you know, some useful advice, but they're probably not going to be full on committed. You know, this will be kind of a hobby sideline for them. Um, and the check size will be small. And so a startup founder might begin with an angel or maybe two or three angels. But then when the company gets a bit of traction and you've got a a good prototype for the product or other sort of markers of progress. And you need a bigger check, let's say, not just, you know, half a million dollars or a million dollars, you want to actually get to raise, you know, 10 million, then you're going to go to a series A venture capitalist. And um, so that's not either or it's like do one. And then if it works out, you progress to the second. Right. And I think we hear all these stories um, in the news all the time about um, some new startup that's that's valued at, at tens, if not hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars. Um, and so I think um, hearing this so frequently, we, we tend to overestimate um, the amount of, of success um, that, that startups typically see. So um, for for new startups, um, what, what, what would you estimate would be sort of the, the proportion of, of new startups that are seeking venture capital funding that actually successfully managed to acquire it and is that is that increasing um, now is do more startups get funded um, in, in in this day and age than would have been say 10 or 15 years ago um, in the United States every year uh, lots of companies get started most of them are not suitable for venture capital because you know they could be um, a mom and pop store they could be you know, a, a business that sort of maybe providing um, some consulting services. I mean, for example, my sister runs uh, a company that does um, focus grouping for brands that want to figure out how to design the right marketing launch for a consumer product. And she does this, you know, from her kitchen. She's very happy that way. She makes a living, uh, but she's not trying to build something that's going to grow really fast. She's She's happy basically being a one or two person shop. 
Uh, and that kind of company is not suitable for venture capital. Venture capital is when you really want to grow fast. As one venture capitalist said, you know, I sell rocket fuel. And if you don't want to build a rocket, you know, don't buy my fuel. Because um, I'm going to expect you to deliver a power law return, which means growing fast and really being ambitious. So the first thing to say is, is that is that you know most companies are not suitable for venture capital backing. But having said that, it's true that the number that gets started that do want venture capital funding uh, and get it is going up. And you can see that in the volume of venture capital that is being raised every year, the, the, the number of deals that are getting done. All of those measures are increasing and they're increasing in the US, but they're also increasing very fast in India and Europe and Latin America from a low base, but it is growing fast. So I think, you know, um, this is a, a form of financing which happens to suit the invention of new ideas, new kind of software-based products, um, things where the capital is not physical, but is intangible, uh, and where there's a lot of, you know, speculative risk in, in whether it will actually work or not. This is what's really well-funded by venture capital, and because the world is moving towards intangible assets as opposed to things that you can drop on your foot, you know, or you know, physical plant and machinery, um, we are moving towards it being a more idea-based economy. And so I think venture capital, therefore, has spread, will spread, uh, and it's kind of, a, you know, the, it's, it's the it form of financing for the intangible economy in which we find ourselves. So do you, do you think that this uh, shift more towards um, intangible, intangible goods is, is the reason behind the, um, the growth in, in venture capital? Because venture capital as an idea has been around for, for a really, really long time. Um, but I mean, we've seen pretty, pretty good growth in, in this space, like you just said, um, with more and more startups being funded. Do you think the, that's, that's the main reason behind it or is, is there something else? I think uh, there's there's two big drivers. The the first is is what you just said. In other words, um, the rise of intangible capital. I mean, a concrete way of saying that is kind of like, you know, the Mark Andreessen comment that software is eating the world. Um, software is one form of intangible capital, uh, and because it's been a time when you know cloud computing has come along and um, mobile web platforms are in everybody's pockets. Um, that sort of dual revolution of smartphones plus cloud computing, and then you add on top of that AI, which could give you smarter um, applications. All of that has created an opportunity to build an entire new suite of um, products. Um, and for the last kind of 12, 14 years, the rollout of that potential has created massive amounts of value, whether it's in things like, you know, Flipkart and Amazon, or whether it's in, you know, um, open table restaurant booking or Uber for ride hailing or, or what have you. Um, and that's one type of intangible that is driving the spread of venture capital. But I'd also say the other thing that's happened is that around about 2005, um, there was a big move by Silicon Valley-based venture capitalists to set up in China. And when that worked, and China became a really strong startup ecosystem delivering returns that were actually even bigger than 
companies like Google had generated a bit before in the United States, the venture capital world woke up and said, we have got a model that can be taken out of Silicon Valley, that can deliver amazing returns in other places. So we need to get our act together here and, you know, go global. And so then you get the spread into India and Southeast Asia. A bit after that, you get the spread into Europe. Now it's happening in Latin America. It's happening within the US as, you know, places like Austin and Miami, as well as New York and Boston, of course, are becoming sort of ancillary tech hubs. Um, and I was talking to somebody yesterday who said it's happening in Dubai. Um, it's really spreading uh, because of this realization that the secret source can be bottled and exported. What about the government in, in these places? So you mentioned China and Dubai. Um, both of those places have extremely, um, extremely um, closed off um, governments, um, authoritarian governments that, that tend to operate in very different ways, tend to have a lot more control over the way the businesses operate. So how, how is the, the regulatory environment um, in, in these places play, uh, worked against or, or in favor of, of these sorts of, uh, of inf- implementing the sort of startup venture capital model in these places? Um, clearly, when people invest, they need to believe that um, the regulatory climate will be roughly stable for the next sort of 10 years, because it's going to take, you know, up to 10 years to get an exit. Um, and so when, for example, the authoritarian government in China starts to change the rules around which types of tech companies can do what, whether it's imposing limits on how much teenagers can spend on video games, uh, or whether it's you know suddenly deciding that online tuition companies ought to be uh, reined in, um, you know those sorts of policy shift are bad for long-term investments, um, and it doesn't mean you're going to see a collapse of China's VC startup world straight away. And of course, there are other types of tech where the government seems to be committed to supporting it. So for the moment, if you're doing, you know, anything in semiconductors or anything in artificial intelligence in China, the government is going to be very much, you know, cheering you on. Um, But the fact that the regime can change and has changed in the last couple of years is, I think, not good uh, for investor confidence or indeed In fact, entrepreneurial confidence, if you're going to sweat your guts out for a decade building a company, you kind of don't want to be at risk that, you know, in year eight, um, suddenly the government decides that it doesn't like what you're doing and all of your work is, you know, ruined uh, by a political shift. So I think think stability is important. Um, And sometimes authoritarian governments do deliver that. After all, China's regime was stable between 2000 and let's say uh, 2019 or 2020. It's just shifted in the last year or two. So I think uh, it's not quite as simple as saying democracy one thing and authoritarianism the other. But I think one can say that sort of rule of law and stability in the regulatory regime are positives. And is there a way that investors typically compensate for that that sort of increased risk in, in markets like China? Um, do you think investors would um, in, invest less money or ask for greater por- uh, parts of the company? Is there any way in which investors are sort of hedging their bets essentially against the increased risk? 
I think it's sort of case by case. In China, um, there is a understandable feeling that this is a huge market. It's growing fast. It's not, you know, the Chinese economy obviously has slowed down a lot since the heyday of the 2000 to 2010 um, period. Um, but, um, you know, China is still, a, a, you know, the world's um, second biggest economy and it's growing really fast. So that's an attractive market. And there's tons of technically trained people who want to be entrepreneurs. So I don't think venture capital, even if it is going to face this political risk, it's not going to just walk away. Um, would it, you know, expect um, some extra share of the company to compensate for the risk? You know, I don't think so, because I don't think venture capitalists think in that sort of precisely calibrated, oh, you know, we can value this new government risk at being, you know, whatever, a sort of 5% increase in the probability of a zero outcome. And when we model that, we need to get, you know, 3% more of the equity in the company. That's just, you know, VCs are way less quantitative and precise than that. If they see a technology where they believe the story that in five or 10 years time, it could really be big, they're going to invest because it's going to make, you know, 10, 20, 30 times their money. And at that point, the political risk is sort of a rounding error. Um, so I, 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 another way of saying this is that the, the basic risk that startup investors face when they back an untested, untried technology is so intrinsically huge, right? As we began by saying, it's a parallel distribution, eight out of 10 may fail and go to zero. That is such a big risk in the first place that some additional political risk doesn't really change the risk reward that much. Right. That makes sense. And so I also wanted to talk to you about um, capital gains taxes. So there have been calls for capital gains tax increases, uh, especially for wealthy investors um, by President Biden and virtually all Democratic members of Congress. Um, however, many tax policy experts have argued that a capital gains tax increase would come as a huge blow to venture capital firms and VCs who often reinvest after tax gains in the next round of risky startups. So do you think that a capital gains tax increase would hurt the future of venture capital? And what's your take on this whole debate as it relates to this? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I've, over the course of my writing life, gone back and forth a bit on, on capital gains taxes. I used to be, um, you know, in favor of um, higher tax rates on capital gains for sort of social equity reasons in the sense that, um, you know, if you're talking about capital gains for um, private investors, you know, by definition, people who are making the capital gains are well off because they've got enough money to to make those investments. And so it feels like, a, you know, on, on sort of grounds of progressive taxation, a good thing to have a decently high capital gains tax. And I felt the same when I wrote a book about hedge funds that I thought they should be paying uh, more tax on the profits that they make and that the loophole called the carried interest loophole which allowed um, hedge fund managers to be paid to, to pay tax um, as though their capital gains, you know, they would pay the capital gains tax rate, which is lower than the income tax rate on the profits on their fund, when in a way their job and their salary was kind of like coming in the form of a capital gain. But since it was their job and their salary, maybe they should be paying the income tax rate. Um, you know, I, I kind of did favor higher tax in that case. But with venture capital, it's a little different. And the reason is that the technologies that 
venture capitalists are bringing into the world and commercializing and spreading into the market have these positive um, spillover effects for economic growth. You know, if you think about something like, um, you know, Dropbox or some sort of cloud computing device that, uh, you know, allows you to, um, you know, edit, like take, you know, Google Drive. Uh, you, you've got teams of people who can, um, you know, edit the same document uh, and collaborate over it and then maybe send, you know, Slack messages to each other and then use Zoom to a video conference about it. All of these products are boosting the productivity of workers. Uh, and that's good for overall growth. It's good for overall GDP per capita and prosperity. And so public policy has an interest in taxing that creation of positive externalities at a generously low rate. And so I think with respect to venture capital, I'm, I'm quite in favor of a low capital gains tax, even though in lots of other areas of the economy, I'm in favor of a high capital gains tax. Right. Um, well, those are all the questions I have for you today. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Um, it's been a real pleasure, Sebastian. Great. It's been a good conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.